From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Corruption. What drives it in a large city like Philadelphia? And who pays the price? I sit with two authors who wrote about the history and culture of corruption in the city as we explore whether the next mayor will push back against corruption or will it be business as usual. Philadelphia corruption has evolved, it has changed, but we're still a city where if someone wants to get a little something on the side, if somebody wants to put their personal gain before the public good, if somebody wants to abuse public authority to advance a private agenda, we're not so upset about that as a city. This past week, the world lost a trailblazing legend. Charity Howard remembers Harry Belafonte. There is no doubt his legacy, his passion for freedom fighting, for advancement of our people and the culture will live on. More with Shara in the City and our panel discussion all coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. We have a busy mayoral race afoot in Philadelphia with several candidates running in the primary race. There have been several debates, a bit of mudslinging, but ultimately, what will the next mayor truly be up against upon taking the oath of office? Is there corruption in Philadelphia government? Is there a political machine at work? in the background? And if so, what are the costs? Joining me today is Brett Mandel. He is the former director of financial and policy analysis for the Office of Philadelphia Controller. He's also author of the new book, Philadelphia Corrupt and Consenting, A City's Struggle Against an Epithet. Also joining us is Richard Dilworth, professor of politics and head of the Department of Politics at Dressel University. And he's author of Reforming Philadelphia, 1682 to 2022. Welcome to you both. Thank you. All right. So let's first talk about your backgrounds, because, of course, we want to make sure that it is clear and understood that you are not only speaking from the standpoint of researchers and authors, you do have a bit of lived experience. Uh, For example, Richard Dilworth's grandfather is a former Philadelphia mayor, Richardson Dilworth, who held the position from 1956 to 1962. So... Richard, you were sort of raised in politics, so to speak, or at least exposed to it at an early age. If you could talk about the political climate during that time and some of the critical issues that were shaping the city at that time. Oh, sure. So uh, during the time that my grandfather was mayor, I was not born. So what I know is in a lot of respects what everybody else knows, except that I heard a lot of stories as being in my family. And I have to say, Certainly in in terms of what was going on in that post-war period, I can certainly speak to that and I can speak to what I think was unique and somewhat typical about Philadelphia. So the first thing was you had the sort of reinvention of the United States and the reinvention of a lot of American cities after World War II, after the return of all the GIs and um, the implementation of new federal programs and new federal funding, a lot of which was directed to cities. You had... In a lot of cities besides Philadelphia, including New Orleans, Pittsburgh, other places, you had a new set of political actors, some of whom were picking up on 
reform movements that sort of took a hiatus during the war, but had been picking up from the dissatisfaction that came out of city government after the Depression or during the Depression. And you had these folks who were returning from the war, like most of the reform actors in Philadelphia. And you had a party political machine that had been around for really since the early 20th century. And it had grown tired. It had lost a lot of its patronage because of the new federal funding as a result of the New Deal and World War II. There was a significant generational turnover. It was relatively sort of old crowd at that point by the 1950s and 1960s. And a lot of dissatisfaction that came from a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and not all that can be blamed on a sort of sclerotic political machine as well. You had a significant housing shortage that by the 1950s was, you know, was only starting to be addressed. You had new racial tensions, especially because of the influx of African-Americans from the South from the Great Migration, which by the 1950s and 1960s was taking on real shape in American cities. You also had a sensibility that I don't think that we have today. I mean, if you think about the folks who are coming into government, who looked at government as reform, who wanted to remove the what they saw as the sort of older, decrepit political machines that did operate through a good amount of sort of side payments or corruption. These were also folks who had by and large been in Europe during World War II. And I think that, and this is just my hunch, but I think that they were very comfortable with the idea of um, destroying things. So you had a real sensibility funded with a huge influx of federal money that not only did you want to sort of kick out what you saw as a corrupt political machine. And to do that by winning elections with a public that had a lot of dissatisfactions, I think a lot of pent up dissatisfactions and a lot of new conflicts. And you combine that with a a real lack of sentimentality and a desire to completely reconstruct cities. And so that brings in the, you know, the federal bulldozer, the desire to tear down massive swaths of the city and to reconstruct it with new expressways, with Uh, new commercial developments, and new public housing. So you really had not just a sort of ideological reinvention, political reinvention of the cities, you had a physical reinvention of the cities. Mm -hmm. And all of those things came together in the 1950s and 1960s prior to the era that we then, I think, kind of refer to as the urban crisis period, which I think is marked especially in Philadelphia uh, by the election of Frank Rizzo. Okay. I'm glad you you laid the groundwork for the discussion because I wanted to definitely give context to the history of the machine, uh, which brings me to this excerpt. And I'd like your both of your reactions to this. Uh, it's an excerpt from uh, Lincoln Steffen's Philadelphia Corrupt and Contended. This is written in July of 1903. A couple of excerpts. The Philadelphia machine isn't the best. It isn't sound. And I doubt if it would stand in New York or Chicago. The enduring strength of the typical American political machine is that it is a natural growth, a sucker, but deep rooted in the people. Also goes on to say the Philadelphians do not vote. They are disenfranchised and their disenfranchisement is one anchor of the foundation of the Philadelphia organization. The machine controls the whole process of voting and practices fraud at every stage. Let's bring that to present day. How far have we come from this? The damning notion that Lincoln Steffens tapped into is not that Philadelphia is corrupt, but Philadelphia was corrupt and contented. We weren't angry about the corruption. We didn't do anything about the corruption. 
And I think that endures to today. Philadelphia corruption has evolved. It has changed. But we're still a city where if someone wants to get a little something on the side, if somebody wants to put their personal gain before the public good, if somebody wants to abuse public authority to advance a private agenda, we're not so upset about that as a city. Our, our civic culture doesn't recoil from that. We don't try to rebel against that. Mm-hmm. And here we have a mayoral election where we're talking about a lot of things, but one thing we're not talking about is corruption. And yeah. we're not talking about which candidates would do something about it, which candidates have done something about it, and what we the people should do about it because ultimately this is a mirror. It is not that there are corrupt officials and we can't do anything about it. The corruption flows from the fact that we won't do anything about it. We remain corrupt and contented. Yeah, that really hasn't been um, examined in this particular election cycle. And, you know, I'm wondering, what would you say is the reason for that? Is it because it's a culture and that is, quote unquote, just the way things kind of work? That's my sense. Over generations and generations, Philadelphians have been used to losing as a city. Uh, Mm -hmm. We, to take the sports side of it, we root for our teams. We hope that they will improve. Uh, We also are sort of fated to be losers, fated to watch them fail and know that no matter how much we root for them, no matter how excited we are for improvement, ultimately they're probably going to let us down. And so we don't stir and we don't rebel and we don't reform. Uh, We just went through the most significant corruption uh, activity in the city's uh, – in the current century. Um, Major power player in the city uh, convicted of corrupt offenses, city council person convicted of corrupt offenses, another city council person indicted and endured trial, and nobody – is saying we need to fundamentally change what we do as a government, fundamentally change the rules of government. We just accept that, like the Sixers losing in the second round, it's just going to happen every year. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Richard, why do you think that we've grown so complacent here when it comes to corruption? So I would agree that I think that there's an aspect of complacency. I think I would frame it a little differently. First, I want to say something about Lincoln Steffens and that famous quote about being corrupt and contented. Lincoln Steffens knew Philadelphia reasonably well, but he didn't spend a lot of time in Philadelphia. He, he actually developed a relatively close relationship with, at that time, the political boss, Israel Durham. But he wrote that article and it was published in 1903. Then it became a chapter in his book, Shame of the Cities. But... One irony of that is that he wrote it, and not that far after, in 1905, the mayor, John Weaver, who was elected by the city's political machine, revolted against the machine. A company was going to lease the city-owned gas works, and the structure of the lease was going to provide a large payout to various members of the political leadership in the city. And the mayor and the city council revolted, and in part they revolted because they were pressured by the public to do so. Mm-hmm. So the our city council was much bigger in 1905. You actually had a bicameral city council and over 100 members of city council, a lot of whom also did things like run bars and separate businesses. And there was a concerted effort to boycott those businesses as a result of the gas lease. So it's, it was a widespread revolt that resulted in 
some level of political change, not tremendous political change, because you're, you're still at the height of the political machine. So when we talk about corrupt and consented today, or corrupt and contented today, now the change that right. Brett Mandel made in his title is messing me up. Sorry. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think there are a lot of things structurally that really give the impression of contentment, whether or not there really is contentment. So the first is if we just do a quick kind of comparison to something like 1905 and today, to 2023. The first is that there was no television and there was no internet. Right. And I think you can make a really strong argument that especially the advent of television just fundamentally changes so much in American society, especially in terms of political action yeah. and in terms of the ability to mobilize people politically, that that's something that really just changes the political dynamic, obviously everywhere and not just in Philadelphia, but it damages the ability to organize politically at grassroots because it has fundamentally altered the way that people interact with one another and it has altered the extent to which people socialize right. in person. The um, other thing I'd point out is just more recently, the massive changes that we've seen over the last 20, 30 years in terms of media and the inability to have a cohesive public discussion about anything like corruption because of the fragmentation of the media and the overall diminishment, especially of the print media. So okay. the other thing I would say is that what was easy in 1905 and what was easy in 1951 and 1956 was that you had a relatively clear target for corruption because you had a cohesive political machine that had various mechanisms by which it could collect patronage and side payments, centralize them, and then redistribute them to maintain a sort of politically cohesive political machine under, at that point, the city's Republican Party. The political machine of the Vare brothers or Boyce Penrose or Israel Durham would never have let this many people run in their party primary. And the fact that we have so many, honestly, really good candidates running for the party, I think, is an indication that we don't have that cohesiveness of a party machine. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about corruption, but there's no single target that we can sort of identify unless we're talking about a single individual who has built up their own sort of personal political machine or used a specific organization like a union or, mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that lack of cohesiveness, um, you're saying it makes it difficult to fight corruption, but not at all entirely impossible to at least to fight and recognize it. No, that's right. And, uh, and as Richard pointed out, in Philadelphia's history, there has been times when Philadelphians have risen up and fought corruption. Uh, but as uh, Plunkett of Tammany Hall famously said, uh, reformers are morning glories. Uh, they fight the good fight, and then when they have a victory, they go back to their lives. Well, the folks who are corruptors, they don't go back to their lives. Corruption is their life. They are still trying to abuse the public uh, power, abuse public authority. So once, uh, once all of us uh, reformers say, okay, we had a good run, now we're going to go back to our day jobs and raising our kids and, uh, and watching the Phillies games, uh, the corruptors get back to, all right, what is it that we can take? What power can we abuse? So just like uh, it's not unheard of for a Philadelphia sports team to win something and we get very excited about that. It's not unheard of for us to come together and uh, and fight something. 
but the defining characteristic of the reform movements is that they fade. Uh, and sometimes the reformers make changes that ironically end up benefiting the corruptors because we think that we've placed a new system in, uh, in the works that will stop corruption. Uh, but instead, the corruptors find new ways to abuse the power and we have to 10 years, 20 years later, come back and say, wait a second, now we have to fight the system that we put in place however many years ago that we thought was going to work. Right. Now, Brett, you spent some time in city government. Of course, you were in the sheriff's office. You were in the controller's office. When did you first experience on hand, firsthand, I should say, corruption in Philadelphia? I think any time that you're involved in any public decision in Philadelphia, you recognize that the driving force of public policy is not public good. It is a private benefit. Somebody needs to be benefiting. Somebody who has some political power needs to find something in this that is helpful to them, whether it's uh, helpful for them electorally or in some cases helpful to them personally or helpful to somebody that they know personally. Uh, that is the the mother's milk that drives Philadelphia politics is then the contributions and the political support that will come from uh, the good work that government does. So if I am mm -hmm. trying to be elected, I need support. I need people to donate money to my campaign. I need uh, volunteers. I need people who are going to believe in me. And some of those people believe in movements and some of those people believe in causes, but some of those people have ways that they want to benefit from government, whether they want contracts, they want jobs. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think it's it's certainly not fair, as, as Richard pointed out, that uh, there is not a monolithic corrupt entity that is uh, doing something on a day-to-day -day basis to uh, shake the public down uh, as, as happened at the turn of the last century. Uh, but now there are interests who want something from government. They're not always large, uh, but the, the driving force behind political movements in Philadelphia is money. And for the most part, uh, people who are donating money want something in return. Yeah. So therein lies the problem from the voter standpoint. You know, who do you put your trust in? Knowing what we know about uh, corruption and, and how things, quote unquote, work, you know, how can you trust that the person that you are electing is going to actually act in your best interest? That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, reforms that could be helpful would change the way money gets into politics and the role of money in politics. So people have talked about public finance of campaign or additional transparency in who donates to campaigns and, and what we can see of who is getting contracts and who is giving money. Uh, we've made some progress about that in Philadelphia in recent years, and there's still more to do. Um, ultimately, though, if we're going to have more transparency in government, being able to see where our money is going, being able to see where political money is coming from, uh, circumscribing the areas where you can give out no-bid contracts or, uh, or, or hire for, uh, for jobs without qualifications, uh, that's helpful. But unless we hold our politicians to a higher standard, unless we turn around and say we're not going to be content with a city that is the poorest big city in America, the most dangerous big city in America, until we say we want results, we want change, we want something better, and we're not going to tolerate public policy moving forward because someone's cousin can get a job or someone's pal can get a contract, until we're going to say we're going to hold you accountable for results that matter to the folks. Bridging Philly continues in a moment.
back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. He was a vocalist, actor, civil rights defender, and a true gentleman. Harry Belafonte also had ties to Philadelphia, as we find out more from Sharaday Howard. In Philadelphia, like many places around the world, many remember Harry Belafonte, the trailblazing actor and singer of what other than the Banana Boat song and countless other musical favorites, even the Jewish classic Hava Nagila. But not many are aware of Belafonte, the fierce defender of civil rights, a passion that marched right through Philadelphia, fostered by his close relationships with Martin Luther King, Marian Anderson, and his mentor, Paul Robeson, relationships that spanned his lifetime. So I sat down to learn more about Harry Belafonte and his Philly connections with Jillian Patricia Pirtle, CEO of the National Marian Anderson Museum, and Janice Sykes-Ross, Executive Director of the Robeson House and Museum in West Philadelphia. I invite you to join me for a little more Philly history. First stop, the Marian Anderson House with Jillian Patricia Pirtle. We still yet breathe his rarefied air here at the Marian Anderson Museum. How fortunate. Were we now when we think of Marian Anderson, of Harry Belafonte and Philly, that connection, can you talk about it? Marian Anderson and Harry Belafonte first drew a connection towards each other in the 1950s during the early risings of Mr. Belafonte's film career and Marian Anderson great heights to her second season of life for her recording career. And Mr. Belafonte was a great admirer of Marian Anderson's, everything that she had worked towards and achieved as an artist and as a civil rights icon. During the height of the civil rights movement, when Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King asked Marian Anderson to perform yet again on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Mr. Belafonte was there. He was there marching arm in arm with Marian Anderson and with Sidney Poitier and so many others for peace, jobs, and freedom. Mr. Belafonte always recalled that because of the poise, the dignity, and the genuineness of Marian Anderson and all that she represented to our people, to the culture, and to civil rights as an idiom, he felt that he could also contribute his voice, his energies to activism and supporting for what was right, just as he greatly admired that of Mr. Paul Robeson. And his work in civil rights, that fire, that passion was really set right here in Philadelphia. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mr. Harry Belafonte was one of those artist activists deployed to Philadelphia to try to work to levelize the playing field for African-Americans that wanted to be a part of the unions in Philadelphia that wanted to see fair housing and treatment and education for African Americans and certainly those in the arts. He was well aware that our great Marian Anderson was the lady from Philadelphia and would often come to her home, which is the Marian Anderson Museum, and sup with her. Um, and it made such remarkable expression 
of love, care, and respect when he took up the invitation by our late founder, Lady Blanche Burton Lyles, to attend the ribbon-cutting ceremony for the opening of the Marian Anderson Museum when it took place over 28 years ago. The remarks that he gave, the wonderful inspiration of how he beloved Marian Anderson, it made all the difference in the world. How lucky were we to have such a spirit as Mr. Harry Belafonte grace these hallowed halls, his presence here honoring our great Marian Anderson, the wonderful inspiration he never forgot. We talk about his daughter. You had a moment with her and it was just a short while ago. What do you walk away from that with? His daughter had the amazing task of presenting the keynote address at the 125th birthday celebration for Mr. Paul Robeson a few weeks ago. When you listened to the remarks that she gave about her father's life and his inspiration, there is no doubt his legacy, his passion for freedom fighting, for advancement of our people and the culture will live on in generations to come. It, it was such a powerful moment because those who truly do the work, those who truly inspire, you see it through the light of others. And we saw it indeed through the light of his daughter that evening. We will dearly miss Mr. Harry Belafonte. And next we sat down with Janice Sykes-Ross, the executive director at the Robeson House and Museum. She tells us a little bit about what it was like to spend time with Gina Belafonte just two weeks ago at Robeson's 125th birthday celebration, where she stood in for her father as keynote speaker. Of course, uh, the Robeson House just celebrated a wonderful, wonderful milestone. Can you talk about the connection between Belafonte and Robeson? Yeah, I mean, I learned so much just from meeting with Gina and talking with her. I mean, I knew that Harry Belafonte had been a mentee of Robeson, but I didn't know like they had such a personal connection. Um, and just talking with Gina Belafonte and learning more about what went on intimately in their house, you know, during the period when Robeson was being persecuted when he was being, you know, uh, railroaded, if you would. Like how this really trickled down to the Belafonte family and what inspiration that became for Harry Belafonte. It was just tremendous hearing that and how they were even gathering people in her home as a little girl, she remembers. And they were talking about, you know, this whole communism and and fight against, you know, colonialism. And all of that was kind of simultaneously happening and how they were really targeting entertainers and that community and artists. Now, Belafonte had a very uh, large and deep connection with Philadelphia through his activism. And of course, you can't be in Philadelphia and speak about, you know, inequity without talking about Paul Robeson and his legacy as well. Yeah, absolutely. And he has come here and met with the former executive director, Vinoka Michael, um, several times and just was really pleased at what the organization was doing and keeping Robeson's legacy alive. So he really had an affinity for Philadelphia as well and what was going on right here in West Philly. Belafonte was actually an honoree 
at the 125th birthday celebration. Can you talk about why you chose Mr. Harry Belafonte? Well, when we were starting the beginning, which was uh, a year or so ago, we started talking about what is the 125th going to look like? Uh, And we started talking about who really can embody the spirit of Robeson. And when you talk about that, Harry Belafonte (laughs) is like the number one name that comes to mind, you know, and so many others. But we certainly wanted to not only honor Paul Robeson, but we also wanted to honor the contributions of Harry. And not only beyond Hollywood, but certainly they have that presence. And through, you know, Sankofa.org, which is the organization that he and his daughter started together, they're really continuing that legacy. And just, you know, Gina Belafonte was so gracious and just coming here and wanting to be a part of this. Why was it so important to have Gina here? Well, we, you know, when we first started asking the question, we wanted her father, you know, we wanted him to come. But of course, I spoke with his wife and she said, there is no way that he's going to travel. And I had written this long letter. We had written this long letter and she read the letter to him. And she said when she was reading the letter, he started shaking his head and smiling in solidarity, but he wasn't physically able to travel. And then Miss Pamela, his wife, suggested that maybe we reach out to Gina, since she is the executive director of Sankofa.org and the president. Her just recalling the stories, personal stories and intimate stories. Yeah, where she got she just got emotional because she just when she talked about her father and how he loved he loved loved Robeson, not only for what he stood for, but he loved the man and the sacrifice. One of the questions that was asked of Gina is, why are you an activist? Why do you feel like you need to follow in your father's footsteps? You could have chose something differently. And she said, no, I couldn't. You know, it is much part of me as saying, I have an arm, I have a leg. If you'd like to hear that full interview with Gina Belafonte, visit Paul Robeson House. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter, at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>